Welcome, and may the Lord be with you. We are excited to have you with us today as we listen to this week's sermon from Blue Ridge Anglican Mission in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Let's listen in. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Most Sundays here at Blue Ridge Anglican Mission, we read the summary of the law. Uh, in your uh, prayer book, you have an option between doing the Decalogue and the summary of the law. You're supposed to do the Decalogue you know, once a month. So for most Sundays, we do use the summary of the law. And it's uh, the same thing that we see here in the gospel passage this morning. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I've wondered why do we do certain things during the service or why do we do some things every Sunday or why do we, you know, what is the reason behind that? And that is kind of what we're going to talk about this morning. Why is it important for us to have the summary of the law recited to us? For, for me, one of the most important reasons we hear the summary of the law each week is greatly tied to where it is located in that liturgical flow of our prayer book. The, the liturgy from beginning to end is a retelling of the gospel. When I tell people about my journey into Anglicanism, uh, I often tell them I was looking for the most God-centric, biblically saturated, Christocentric tradition that I could find, and the liturgy gives me that. And so if we look at the service, from the very moment we start the service with the processional until the very last dismissal, we hear a continual telling of the supremacy of Christ, we hear of our constant need of forgiveness due to our sin. And most importantly, we hear of the forgiveness that Christ offers and not only hear of it, but we receive absolution and then we get to partake of the sacrament of Holy Communion. That is the overarching story or flow of the liturgy. And at the summary of the law, we are reminded of two things. Number one, of what is required of us as Christians. And the number two, of our sinfulness. Because none of us live up to that standard that we have read to us. I think too often we see parts of the liturgy as just these individual pieces. We don't see them as something that goes together. We don't understand how they connect. We don't necessarily see the glue that binds it all together. There is no rhyme or reason for why we do what we do. We say this or do that just because it's on the paper that we have, just because it's in the prayer book, or because that's what you're supposed to do, or that's because what everybody else does. We don't necessarily see how all of this works together, especially for those of us who do not come from a liturgical background, those of us who do not grow up as Anglicans. We might not understand the why. The why things fit together. You see, that's not how the liturgy works. It doesn't just put pieces together just to, to make an hour-long service. You, you don't go in and you get to pick and choose what you add and what you drop and how you do this and do that. It is one comprehensive thing that is working together for the purpose of worship. For the purpose of reminding us of our sin, Christ's forgiveness, and Christ's sacrifice. So maybe the first place we can start in looking at the summary of the law is asking the question, what exactly does it mean? 
So if we look at the first part, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That, that was not new. There's a reason that that was a standard answer is because it wasn't a new revelation. It was very well known. Uh, it was no surprise. And Jesus' response to the lawyer starts with the version of the Shema, which is the prayer that for thousands of years the Jews have prayed. Still today, to this very day, they, they say that prayer. It's how they start their days. So it's wildly important to understanding who God is. Jesus was very clearly communicating to the Pharisees there and to all of us that what he came to do was not create some new religion, but he was fulfilling the law and the prophets. So what does it mean to love God with your heart and with your soul and with your mind and your strength? Well, to me, the, the point is very clear. If I summed it up for uh, a five-year-old, I would just say is love God with everything that you have, right? It's, it's pretty, pretty clear. You just love God with everything that you are. This isn't, and when we talk about love, this isn't some kind of emotional love. It's not a feelings kind of love. It's a love of dedication, a love of commitment, a love that says this is right and this is noble, and no matter how I feel, I love. It's an agape love. That's actually the word used here in this passage is agape. It's that self-sacrificial love. It's a, it's a, um, a thinking of others' first love. And it is with everything that you are kind of love. With everything that you are. Every single bit and piece. I, I really like the way N.T. Wright summarizes this in his passage, or the passage in his commentary. He says, The Jewish law begins with worship, with the love of God. Because if it's true that we're made in God's image, we will find our fullest meaning, our true selves, the more we learn to love and worship the one we are designed to reflect. Listen, I, I'm not going to try to improve on that. I think that sums it up perfectly. That is what is at the heart of this first part of the summary. It's to love God with everything. You are created in God's image, and there's no better way to reflect that than to worship and to love God in a way that you are loving and worshiping that person, that one that you are created to reflect, or designed to reflect. Our lives should be solely and wholly focused on loving God with all that we are. Now, you have to remember the lawyer asked Jesus, what is the great commandment in the law? He, he wasn't looking for the top three. He, he wasn't asking David Letterman for his top ten, right? He said, what is the, the singular great commandment? You know, whenever somebody asks me, you know, a question, normally I say, well, there, there's two reasons for that. I can never give one reason. If you said, what is your favorite place to visit? I'm, I'm never going to say one place. I always give two. But not, here Jesus does something different. The lawyer asked for the one, and Jesus gives two. Jesus answered him by saying, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. End of story, right? End of story. Wipe our hands clean. Let's move on. Uh, but not exactly. That's not what Jesus does. He continues on. He says, And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So he summarizes all the law and the prophets in two ways. One is love God with everything and love others. Love God, love others. 
The interesting thing here is that Jesus didn't consider the second as something inferior. But he saw loving others as being directly connected or directly tied to or directly related to the loving of God. All of the law and the prophets teaching hang on these two things, loving God and loving others. If we are to love God and worship God because we are made in the image of God and we are designed to reflect God, no better way to do that than to love him and to worship him, then secondarily there's no better way to to show that than to also love other people who are created in the image of God. Regardless of what they may look like, regardless of what they may believe, regardless of how they may treat you, is to love them as you love yourselves. We can't get away from this loving others thing. You can't escape it. You, you don't get to pick that apart. You don't get to pick and choose what part of that you believe or what part of that you actually live out. The implication is clear. I mean, if we go to 1 John in chapter 3, it's very clear. He says in verses 10 through 11, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Okay, that's clear. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. If you do not love your brother, you are not of God. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. It's not a message that came just at Jesus. It's a message you've heard from the very first day of your life is that you are to love others. He continues on a couple verses later in verse 14. He says, We know that we have passed out of death into life. So here's how you can know you've passed out of death into life. Okay, listen up. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. How are you to treat your brother? You're to treat your brother the same way that Christ treated you. He laid down his life for you. You're to lay down your life for them. These passages are unmistakable. If you don't love others, God is not in you. We can't escape the truth of what is required of us. We must love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and we have to love others. It's not optional in your walk with God. It's not optional in your salvation. You don't get to say, I walked an aisle, said a prayer, I've got salvation, I don't have to do anything else. You are required to love God and to love others. It's not something you can decline. No, thank you. I opt out. And so the summary of the law reveals to us our requirements of how we are to live and obey Christ. And in doing so, it also reveals to us how we fail because we do fail. Every single person in here today has failed. There's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to feel condemned about. It's a fact. We fail to love God perfectly. We fail to love others perfectly at all times and in all places but if we look to our liturgy there is something that follows when we read the summary of the law yes we fail and our only response is to do one thing and that's a cry out lord have mercy upon us christ have mercy the point is not to glorify your failure the point is not to condemn you because of your failure the point is not to 
to exalt your failure. The point is to look to Christ. That's why whenever the summary of the law is read, we say, Lord, have mercy. There's no other response. This is the beauty of the liturgy because it's the beauty of the gospel. That in those times when we do not do as we ought, Christ is there to show mercy. He stands always merciful to us, his beloved. He loves us. So for me, the liturgy is not some just pick and choose your own adventure type thing that we do. We don't get to say, hey, what is your opinion on the humble prayer of humble access? Do you not like it? We can just cut it. We don't get to do that. It's one of the most beautiful prayers in all of the prayer book. The liturgy is not just some order of service. It is the gospel being preached to us because we need to hear it each and every Sunday. You might say, I I don't understand why you always talk about this. Father Drew, why do you always point out why do we do what we do in liturgy? Because it's important. We do it every Sunday. We don't do it just out of rote repetition or out of ritual. We do it because it's the gospel. One of the reasons I put so much emphasis on connecting what we believe, what we're called to do in the scriptures to our liturgy is because we should not see the liturgy as just an order of service that we get through, but a complete opportunity for worship of the one true God and a place where we find comfort. No matter what I'm going through in my week, no matter how bad the depression may be, no matter how bad the thoughts might be, no matter how bad things may be this afternoon, This morning, this liturgy is comfort. The sacrament is comfort. The Word of God is comfort. And for those who might deal with depression or anxiety, those moments of comfort are precious. We cling to those moments. And so we see this full opportunity to worship the one true God. And that starts from the very moment that we process in with the cross which signifies that what we are doing now is about King Jesus it's not about Drew it's not about Chris or Rick it's about King Jesus and we didn't say the collect of purity where we recognize that we need the thoughts of our hearts cleansed because we're coming from a world that hates this King Jesus we're coming from a world that hates this kingdom and thus we need to be prepared to worship From there, we hear the law recited to us, whether it's the Decalogue or the Summary of the Law. We hear it recited to us, and we're reminded of how sinful we are, not to beat us down, not to condemn us, not to depress us. We hear how sinful we are because when we see our sin, we only know to look to Christ. And so our response is, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. Where do we turn when we have problems? Where do we turn in our sin? We always turn to Christ asking him for mercy. That's why we That's why this is so important to you. Not to get you through your Sunday morning, it's so important to you because where else would you find comfort than Christ? And in the gospel. We then move on to the collect of the day which kind of collects our thoughts and and, and gives us that laser focus. And then we move on to the reading of God's word. His word being proclaimed, his lively word, his piercing word that pierces our hearts and convicts and draws and encourages us. 
and then to stake our flag in Orthodox theology and to unite ourselves with the one Catholic and apostolic church, we recite together as a body of believers what we believe by saying the Nicene Creed. How important is it that each week we continually recite this creed that the whole church for most of its history has said together? We're joined together with all of our brothers and sisters who have gone before us saying, this we believe, this we stand. And then we hear God's word being proclaimed and uh, explained to us in the sermon. And then from there we move on to the altar where we pray for the whole state of Christ's church. We don't pick and choose what we want to pray for each week. We don't say, well, we're going to focus on this because this is my hobby horse. I've been in those churches where you have a hobby horse, right? You have, a, you have this one thing that you're always praying for, and it becomes like a running joke. Well, is, 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 is Brother Rick going to pray for that this week? We pray for the same thing. and we, we, we don't narrow it down. We pray broadly. We take prayer very serious as Anglicans. And then as we draw near to the sacrament, what do we need to do? As we come to the holy table, to this holy altar, what do we need to do? We need to deal with the sin. We need the opportunity to really deal with our sins and to seek forgiveness. So we have what we call the general confession. And what, what is God faithful and just to do if we confess our sins? To forgive us. So when we confess our sins, then the next thing we do is we receive forgiveness. Always forgiveness. That's his response to us. When you confess your sins, his response is always forgiveness. It's never a, yeah, but. There's never a, well, let's talk about that. It's always, yes, you're forgiven. And thus we have the absolution of our sins by the priest. And I don't know about you, I was just talking to a, a dear friend of mine yesterday, a fellow priest, and we were talking about how overwhelming the thought of the absolution is. How overwhelming the thought is, just in a few moments, Father, you're going to absolve us of our sins. How overwhelming is that thought, the, the heaviness that comes along with that? We're not just saying words. We really believe this is happening. But I don't know about you. I know how bad I am. <laughs> I, know how, I, I know how much I struggle with, does God really love me? How could he love me? But because it's so unbelievable, we had the comfortable words. We had these words of comfort that comes from holy scriptures that tell us that we are in fact loved and forgiven. And then from there we move to the source of Corda where we lift up our hearts. We're saying our, what's happening here is joining what's happening in heaven. We're having this, this worship. It's a combining and then from there we go into the Sanctus, or the Holy, Holy, Holy. And we join there with angels and archangels and all the, 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 the crowd of heaven. And we proclaim and magnify and laud this song of Holy, Holy, Holy. We again tell God how great He is. And then we get to the Eucharist. Wow. I mean, just think about all that we've just experienced up to this point. Now we're at the Eucharist. We're at Holy Communion. And we go through the words of institution to the oblation to the invocation. And we are reminded continually of what Christ has done for us and the benefits of his death. That in receiving this holy sacrament, we get to partake of that passion. We present to God a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And we offer and present our, unto him ourselves, our souls and bodies to be a reasonable, holy and living sacrifice. And that by receiving the body and blood of Jesus... 
that we be filled with grace and heavenly benediction and made one body with him, that, listen, that he may dwell in us and we in him. That's heavy stuff right there. That we meet Christ here at the altar. More importantly, he meets us. And then we say our prayer, right? We say the Lord's prayer, which is our prayer. It's only a prayer only Christians can pray, right? And we pray together then that beautiful prayer of humble access. Because we are still acknowledging that we are not worthy to even gather up the crumbs under his table. While some may question this prayer of humble access, it is, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful prayers in all of the prayer book. And then, in the climax of the service, we receive Christ in the sacrament. We receive Christ in the sacrament. We are spiritually fed by his body and blood. And what is the right and proper way for us to react when receiving a gift? This, this morning I, I got up and I went into my office to do my morning routines. And, uh, you know, had just, just had my breakfast, with coffee was cooking, brewing, whatever coffee does. I don't know. It's magic as far as I'm concerned. And I walk into my office. It's there sitting on my desk are three little figurines. I began collecting these little figurines from The Office, which is our favorite show. And it's Dwight Schrute, and it's Jim Halper, and it's Michael Scott. And I get them. And I had this gift. And what's the first thing I had to do? I went, up, I, went, I went up to the living room and I looked at Risa. I said, thank you, Risa. Because that's what we do. When you receive a gift, you give thanks, right? So what do we do when we receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ? Well, we give thanks. We go to the post-communion prayer and we give thanks. We thank him for feeding us with his most precious body and blood. And because of the great event that we have just experienced, this great climax in worship, we join in in one of the oldest and most beautiful hymns ever, and we say the Gloria. So from moment one to the end, we are doing nothing but exalting King Jesus. We are acknowledging our unending dependence upon him. We are constantly acknowledging that we need him more and more, and the liturgy constantly reminds us that he forgives, that he gives grace, that he gives mercy. And it reminds us the key part of the gospel, that in our greatest need, Christ came for us, and thus we get to partake of him in the Eucharist. I am passionate about this. The liturgy is far from just an order of service, if you let it be. Instead, it is a constant reminder of how great God is, the place of Christ as King and as Savior, and a reminder that it is only in Christ where you find forgiveness and life. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Blue Ridge Anglican Mission. We are a parish of the Orthodox Anglican Church that is situated in the beautiful mountains of Hendersonville, North Carolina. If you want to learn more, check us out at blueridgemission.org. Now, let us go in peace to love and serve the Lord.